Black Girls Talk True Crime, where we discuss true crime movies and the people, places, and events they were based on. I'm Carol, your resident true crime-loving Black girl, and I'm here with my sister, Alex. Say hi, Alex. Hi, Alex. Alex and I record from separate places, so she can't actually see what I'm seeing in the room. There's actually a big, giant elephant in the room, and he's holding up a sign that says, address me, so I think we might as well address that. Uh, We have not been you know, uploading these episodes as consistently as we would like to. You know, there's been a lot going on behind the scenes. We're at the point where we've kind of figured everything out and we're, you know, we just want to let you know that we're going to be a little bit more consistent with our uploading schedule. So thank you to all of those of you who have, you know, been patient with us and, um, you know, thank you for sticking by us. Um, so we're just going to get started. As you can tell from the title, we chose an OG true crime movie, Noldie But A Goodie. It's called Death of a Cheerleader. And FYI, we didn't choose the 2019 version, ill. We chose the original 1994 version starring Tori Spelling and Kelly Martin. It was my choice, Carol. I'll tell you quickly why I chose this movie. Uh, it was just one of those movies that I kind of remember watching as a kid. It's something that kind of stuck in my mind, something that I've watched over the years, you know, here and there. And because generally when you watch true crime movies, you never see, or at least at that point when I had seen it, you never see a movie where uh, somebody who I guess you could relate to, somebody who's young, somebody who seems like a decent person or somebody, you know, who you would least suspect could, you know, commit a crime like that. So I guess this is one of those movies that really made me kind of interested in, you know, the human psyche. You know, like what would drive somebody, just an ordinary suburban teenage girl who seemed to have, you know, she came from a loving home. She seemed to have a lot going for her. What could drive her to do something like that? So like I said, this is something that kind of always remained with me. So, you know, when I was thinking of movie choices, I kind of stuck with this one. I I don't know. I guess we can get into it. Um, We open up on a picturesque, uh, quaint town. I guess you could say it's the kind of town where people think nothing bad ever happens. You know, you watch the news a lot and crimes happen and then people are always shocked as though crimes only happen in like urban areas or places where those people live. I mean, we see ducks swimming in a beautiful serene pond. We hear like this sort of orchestral music, which kind of serves as a backdrop. We are treated to a lot of these, you know, small town offerings. Like we see this man taking his daily jog and a group of kids riding their bikes and we see a friendly game of tennis being played. So you kind of get a a sense of what kind of place we are in. This is just an aspirational town, someplace you would want to live, someplace where you would want to raise your kids. And, you know, that's when we kind of hear this undercurrent of something like this music that's a little bit more ominous. And the scene kind of switches to night and we see a teenager and we later learn her name is Stacy Lockwood. She's a passenger in a car and the car pulls up into a deserted parking lot. And we kind of see this church in the background. You know, she lights up a, what appears to be a joint. We never actually see her smoking it. And at this point, we don't even know who the driver is. 
And um, this kind of the scene kind of cuts to a group of you know middle aged adults, and they are having this adult night of cards and wine. I can't even remember what game they were playing. Do you know what game they were playing? I think they mentioned it. Can't remember. And the bell rings, and Stacy talks to one of the homeowners. Her name is Carol, and she asks Carol whether she could use the phone to call her parents because, and the quote was, "You know, my friend got a little weird on me." And of course, Carol agrees because this is the eighties, <laughs> right? Well, not the <laughs> not the movie, but you know, the time that this took place was nineteen eighty five. Yeah, I was thinking that to myself. Like, imagine that happening today during this time. I don't think we'll go down like that. Yeah, I'll be honest with you. Um, I'm if so, if somebody came to my door and they did that, I'd be like, you know, you stay out there, and I will call the police. Like, because sometimes some of that stuff is set up. Yeah, times we live in. So when Stacey attempts to call her parents, she doesn't get an answer, and the other homeowner, the husband of Carol's name is Kevin Lake. He agrees to, or he offers to give her a ride home. As they're driving home, he sees. A car following them, and it's the the Pinto that this unknown driver is driving. She gets to her home, she gets to her house, but as we already knew, her parents aren't home yet. So she goes to her neighbors while Kevin uh, remains in the car and is waiting for her to get in. So from a distance, like he sees what appears as an argument, and I guess he thinks nothing of it. Hears screaming, and then. I don't know if they described her as chubby. Was she chubby? Uh, Bernadette Prouty? Right. Yeah, she was. Yeah. So, okay. So he sees someone running to the car and the car just races off and he decides to, why does he do this? He just, he decides to chase after the car as opposed to going to see what Stacy or how Stacy's doing. The actual, let me look his name up. What was his name? Do you have it? Alex Arnold. Yes. Oh, all of this is so funny. You said her name was Carol and his name was Alex. Check all right. <laughs> <laughs> so he actually, at the time, he he didn't realize what was actually happening. He didn't realize it was a, um, a stabbing. He actually thought it was a fight. I know, but why did he chase after the car? He thought it was a fight and she was just, you know, probably just, you know, knocked out or something like that. He just wanted to chase the car because he wanted to figure out who the culprit was. But he drove for quite a bit of time. And when he wasn't able to catch up with her, he just decided that he would go back and check up right. on her. And then at that point, that's when the neighbor, Arthur Hillman, that's when he um, you know, had already discovered her and Kevin, I mean, sorry, Alex, Alex Arnold, that's when he comes back and he sees that it's actually a, a stabbing that took place and everything ensues from there. This is what's going through my mind. So with that scene... Where he, you know, he's chasing her as opposed to going to check on Stacy. That brings me to a situation I've always played in my mind. So if if I'm with someone and something happens to that person, say I'm with you and, and we're driving, and I don't know, maybe you're approaching a car or something like that, and then God forbid you get hit by a car. I'm thinking to I always ask myself this: Do I try to see if you're okay, or do I run after the person who's running away? You know what I mean? That's kind of what went through my mind when this has happened. Like, yo, do I check on this person or do I try to find this criminal who hit hit my sister to, you know, bring this person to justice? And I think that's what happened in this situation. Like he just chose, and I still haven't decided which I'm going to do. I guess you have to be in that situation. You know what I mean? And that's probably what happened to Alex. 
thankfully, um, you know, these days we have cell phones. So that situation might, you know, that kind of makes it a little bit different because you could kind of chase after the person and call the police at the same time. But you I don't know. want to be there. Well, yeah, I of course. Be there with you. You know what I mean? But, but then uh, again, you want to make sure that the person absolutely. who you know, perpetrated the crime is, you know, brought to absolutely. justice. Because once they're gone, they're gone. But you, just you know, never know what you're going to. Yeah. Yeah. You know, that's just kind of an in the moment sort of uh, decision. So we'll see what happens when you get hit by the car, okay? Oh, thank you. We'll see what happens <laughs> when you get hit by the car. So yeah, she's staggering to the house um, because she's been stabbed it wasn't actually an argument she was stabbed by what is her name angela oh yeah angela and like we said the neighbor sees and he yells to his son to go call the police and before you continue can we just talk about this screaming um this obvious adr it was so bad like does tori spelling not know how to scream <laughs> convincingly on camera did you pick up on that I think so. I think <laughs> what, what, what was that? <laughs> I think that was more focused on her her stagger, the way she was walking. Everything about that scene was so hilarious. Cringe. Yeah. Cringe. So she collapsed, um, you know, citing that she can't feel her legs and she can't breathe. And this is something else that I think about. Like, yo, I think I'm about to die. Do I name my killer? Or am I saying my symptoms? I can't breathe. I can't feel my legs. You know what I mean? Has she said? I wonder if that's like, you don't, you're not thinking like, I wonder if like she's in shock and I would hope that like, you know, I would do something like that. But mm-hmm. I don't, I, sometimes I think maybe your mind just works differently. Like when yeah. you're in that moment, I don't, I don't know. Yeah. Her mind is more focused on her yeah. being and not, yeah. I guess so. Yeah. Now her parents, we see that her parents are driving home it's the mom the dad and the son and they see the flashing lights of police cars and an ambulance and stacy she's being put into an ambulance and i believe the next scene is the parents at the hospital they witness her their daughter dying Mm. you know what i mean um Mm -hmm. i can only imagine like the heart sinking the the gut-wrenching feeling that the the parents are feeling as they see the the life leaving uh their daughter you know what i mean i would hope it didn't happen that way i hope that that was just for dramatic you know license and that wasn't actually how it happened and that they were you know she was in a separate room that's just and i'm sure that's horrifying it's a real life um, that's horrifying yeah they don't let you see what's going on yeah but um before we get into like we go on to the next scene um where it flashes back to 10 months we just really quickly talk about the actual you know, we'll just introduce the actual, the real life um, subjects of this film. The character of Stacey Lockwood, her actual real name was Kirsten Costas. Mm-hmm. And Angela Del Vecchio, her real life counterpart was Bernadette Prati. They attended Miramonte High School, which is located in Orenda. And it's a Northern California suburb with a population, or at least at this time, is a population of about 17,500. And the median... Household income was about 60,000 at that time, which translate roughly to about $145,000 in today's money. (laughs) That's a lot of bread. Yeah. So you can see this was like an upper middle class sort of suburban existence. I mean, they had, of course, their probably more middle class 
um, residents like, um, I believe Angela, that's who she represented. She wasn't as, or her family wasn't as prestigious as like a Stacey Lockwood's family. So I just wanted to, you know, kind of talk about these actual real life people. We'll get a little bit more into it as we go along. We flash back to 10 months earlier. At this point, we are at a school pep rally. Um, I used to actually like those. We didn't even have, we only had those once a year, but I like those. It was like, I never really got into it because I don't know. I just never really got into it. No, I like them because it was just like a free, free day out of class and (laughs) <laughs> I, like I, I didn't care about sports or whatever like no at this pep rally we're introduced to the principal his name is ed Sachs. i don't care for him i don't care for his kind at all he just seems like that sort of administrator who all he cares about is like appearances the popular kids like that's what his focus was like the you know the jocks the rich kids and I don't know, like he just seems so into that sort of segment of the student population as opposed to someone like Angela, um, who is a hardworking student. Like, I don't know, like he just seems more interested in like, I don't know what you can do for me. I don't know if he cared about, you know, the rich kids because, you know, I guess the parents were possibly, um, they donated, you know, money to the school or whatever, but I just, I really didn't like him. I don't know how if you had any any feelings either way about him, but I did. I didn't, I didn't right. care for him. So my opinion about him in the beginning, it was it was, it was favorable. Um, I like the speech that he gave in the in the beginning, the speech that inspired Angela, uh, where he said, "I challenge you to be the best individual that is in you to be." I thought that was a great speech, a great motivator for people to you know really try to do their best. As the movie progressed, um, some of the things that he said, um, and some of the things that he did made me have a different opinion of him. And we'll discuss that as we go along. They attend uh, Santa Mira High School and we see Angie, she's talking to Jill. I like Jill. I don't know that there was an actual real life Jill, but I like the character. I do. She is a really good friend. She is. But, you know, she's Angela's talking to her about her aspirations to be a cheerleader, to be a lark, and to be a yearbook editor. Like, we see certain people, like a character that we'll later learn um, a little bit more about. Her name is Jamie. She attended St. Joseph's. Okay, so Angela and Jill, they're outside, and it looks like they're on a lunch break. Um, Jill is talking to Angela, but Angela, her attention is somewhere else. And you see that she's paying attention. She keeps glancing over to Stacy and her friends. And as you mentioned earlier, Jamie was Angela's friend, best friend from the school. Jamie, who is among Stacy and her peers, uh, she invites Angela to join them and she gets the okay from Jill. And so she goes over there. Jamie introduces them and the girls, they, 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 they barely say hello. And Stacy says nothing. And so Stacy starts telling them a story about an incident at school. And as she's finishing up her story, Monica, the golf chick, she walks by and Stacy teases her and all the girls laugh. Um, everybody except for Jamie and Angela. So it's now after school and Angela meets up with Jill, Jill who is waiting for her. And Angela, she's very excited that she got the job at the attendance office. And Jill, she's not impressed. She just doesn't want her friend to get hurt by trying to be friends with Stacy because she thinks Stacy is mean, not a, a kind person. And so Jill mentions the incident with Monica and Angela, who again didn't laugh during the incident. But then Angela is defending Stacy. She's putting some of the blame on Monica. I think she said something along the lines of Monica. She brings the attention to herself, something like that. But again, like I said, she's 
defending Stacy, even though she didn't think what Stacy did was right. <laughs> Jill's mom picks them up, and this takes us to the next scene. As she's dropping Angela off, even though Jill wasn't excited for Angela for getting the attendance job, she does earnestly congratulate her friend on getting the job. And so these are some of the things that you'll begin to see that Jill does that makes her a good friend. And Angelo, who's full of hope, she assures her friend that it's going to be a good year. And as she's walking towards her home, her expression changes. And in my mind, and as we'll learn later, is because she's just not really happy with the situation she has going on. Like you said, she has loving parents. She just doesn't have that big house that everyone else in town has. You know what I mean? But the thing about I learned about Bernadette, you know, unlike what's represented in this film, she actually was popular. We like, all want what we don't have. She but she, what I'm saying is it was somewhat of a misrepresentation in this movie. Like they painted her as like this um, unpopular kind of outcast, but she was part of the in crowd. What I didn't like, I mean, I was, you know, I'll get into that a little bit more, you know, as we go on, but I didn't really care for the perspective that this movie chose. I'll explain that a little bit more later. They just make it seem like Stacy is just really all the way on the outs. And that wasn't the case based upon my, um, you know, my research. We see Monica, who is played by Catherine Morris. I don't know if any of you are fans of Cold Case. She played Detective Lily Rush. She looks about 35 in this movie, but whatever. She is the goth character, the one that is ostracized. And we also see Stacy and her friends making fun of Monica. You also see Angela. She keeps glancing in Stacy's direction, uh, Stacy and her friend's direction. Okay, like what we learn a little bit more about Angela is that she is such an optimistic person. Like she has all these hopes and all these aspirations. Like she is a dreamer. You know, I like I noticed like there are a lot of people in her circle kind of um they were more, I don't know if you want to call it more pragmatic or more realistic, but like a lot of times, like when she was, you know, having these lofty goals, they would kind of try to bring her down to earth. And I say, don't do that. Especially if somebody is young and they really, and then you see, not just, not just somebody who aspires to do something, but somebody who works hard and puts effort into something and like, just, you know, continue to encourage that and, you know, continue to motivate that. Don't like be a downer. So at this point, you know, we see Angela, she's at her house and we see her with her dad. He is, working on a car. And that that's one thing that struck me is that her parents were a lot older. Either one or two things were true for me. Like they were trying for a really long time to have a kid and, you know, eventually they had Angela or she is one of a long list of kids. And the latter turned out to be true. She is from a family of about, I think, five or six kids. We don't really learn a whole heck of a lot about her parents. Like watching the movie this whole time, I thought her father was a mechanic. He was a retired engineer for the city of San Francisco. I guess he likes to tinker around with cars as a hobby. So she goes into the house. She sees her mom, Miss Del Vecchio, played by the transcendent Valerie Harper. Rest in peace. Valerie Harper's part in this film was small, but she was really good. I really liked her in this movie. Like, you know, I don't want to get ahead of myself, but that scene where she, we'll, we'll get into that. There's a scene like later on, like, closer towards the end of the movie, that she just really, she killed it for me. And we see her sister is home. She's She has an older sister, one of many older siblings. 
We are with Teresa, who's played by Kristen Miller. Shout out to Drew Carey fans. Like, it's crazy. There's like so many people popping up, especially when you watch old, older movies. You see so many people that you've come to know in later, you know, you know, other projects. But Teresa is complete opposite of Angela. She is the pragmatist and she is basically telling her, you know, living at home or living on your own rather is not all it's cracked up to be. You go to work and you pay bills and that's pretty much it. And you know what? She's a hundred percent right. <laughs> we tell kids like, just don't be in a rush to grow up. It's not all that it's cracked up to be. It's just, I'm telling you, if you're, if you're like in high school or college and you're listening to this, I'm telling you, trust me, like you want to grow up and be in your own, but there's so much responsibility and whatnot that comes with being an adult. You have such a, sh- I remember I had a teacher who used to always say this and you don't realize or you don't grasp what it means until you're older. But she used to say, you have a short time to be a kid. Mm-hmm. You have your whole life to be a grown up. So enjoy being a kid. And she would say that. And I'm like, whatever. I want to be older. <laughs> you know what I mean? And sometimes when I look back, I would kill to like go back to high school and just have that sort of, <gasps> you know. You would kill? Oh, Lord. <laughs> Not literally. So just be more carefree and just, it's so funny how... So much of what you thought was such a big deal in high school Mm. was such nothing. Right. Even like in this situation, like when you think about Angela, she thought it was the end of the world. I mean, I don't want to jump ahead of myself, but you know, like not making certain, you know, clubs and organizations. Like she thought that was the end of the world. And she is somebody who wouldn't have peaked in high school. She is somebody to me, post high school, she would have been super duper successful. Like she had so much ambition. She had so much talent. She had so much passion. Like she's somebody who had, she just chilled the heck out. She would have been good. She would have went on to college and she would have flourished. That's just my opinion. Mm -hmm. But of course, Angie is, you know, back to Angie and Teresa's conversation. She is super optimistic and she tells her that she wants to be a writer. And she, like Danielle Steele, for those of you who don't know old school tidbit, Danielle Steele was like this, prolific novels yeah (laughs) romance novelists i feel like they used to turn a lot of her novels into like um movies yeah i'll i'll tell you a secret i remember my (laughs) i used to be so embarrassed when i was a kid i don't know how but my mother she used to get do you remember she used to get like romance romance novels in like the mail Mm-mm. You don't remember that? It was like a brief period of time. I don't know who did that. I don't know who did that. <laughs> Somebody filled something out for her. And she would get them in the mail and I would sneak and I would read them. And I would be so into that. Mm. <laughs> I was, mm. I was, whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> <laughs> I would be so into that. I'm like, whoa. <laughs> hey, what can I say? Hey guys, I never admitted that to anybody. She's, Alex is just learning this for the first time. I digress. Angie, she talks about wanting to be a writer and wanting to live in Cabrini. I guess that's supposed to be, a, you know, an affluent town. You know, by so now, water. what do you say? Oh, yeah. Yeah. She wants to live by the water, which is like a really nice dream to have. There's nothing wrong with that. But, but um, there is like, pump your brakes, little sis. Yeah. More practical. And um, this upsets Angela and she just, <laughs> she just storms out of the kitchen. And it took her so long to get to her room. I don't know if you... Oh, yeah. When the camera's just like kind of following her, following, you know, like like tracking her. I'm like, all right. Right. And we keep hearing like, you know, from like Jill and whatnot that she's like a, the best writer in the school. Like, so I, that's leading me to believe like, you know, she really has some talent. There was really a possibility that she could have been a successful, you know, writer, or at least made a solid living as a writer. 
it makes these events all the more tragic. Right. She, she, you know, not only did someone die, her dreams died. Like the life that she would have had, it ceased to exist the moment she made that stupid, ill-fated decision. So now we're at the attendance office and Stacy is talking to this guy. He's like, his name is Court. He's such a dick. I don't care for him at all. But why does he look like he's 30? Like, who was casting these movies in the 90s? All these kids look like so much older. With the exception of like- Johnny Depp. (laughs) What happened? They think they're Johnny Depp. It looks so old. Like, with the exception of like Kelly Martin and maybe the actress that case. Kelly Martin has been cast in so many like teenage movies. I remember saying to myself like, yo, how old is she? Like, yeah, she was like 19 in this. She was like 19. Like no, I, but I remember us having this conversation before about how Kelly Martin, she's always in these like what lifetime movies. Mm-hmm. No, she's mad old playing these young parts. You know what I mean? Because she looked so young for so yeah. long. Mm-hmm. She, you know, she was able to get away with that. I mean, time, um, time is caught up. Let's just say that. She, she, you say yikes. I said not nice. Thank oh, you. I, I, I didn't mean it. I mean, what is she like in her 50s? I mean, I mean, 40s? She's probably in her 40s. I think I told you that she was in the 2019 version. Uh, she played one of the cops. You know, I guess that was like an homage to the original. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So Stacy is talking to Court, who's a jock. She asked Angela to write a note to excuse his tardiness, I believe it was. Or his absence was. Pardon? He skipped class. Okay, to excuse uh, him for skipping class. And this was actually what happened in real life. Like, Stacy would actually um, do that. So, you know, she's like, look, I'm not getting my hands dirty. You want to do it? Do it. Great. You know, I'm going to have plausible deniability here, which is uh, smart. <laughs> and so she doesn't want to write the note at first, but she does so because Stacy's like complimenting her. She's like manipulating her. She's like, oh, you're the best writer, you know? Mm-hmm. She's like, okay, I want to be your friend, so I'll do it. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. That's what uh, Bernadette was like. I doubt that she even hesitated. She was somebody who wanted to please. She wanted to belong. So she would do things that were outside of her character just to be a part of the crowd that she wanted to belong to. She's talking to Court about Monica. I'm like, bro, like she's not even around. What are you like? She had an obsession with Monica. She did. She did. Like everything she said would be about Monica. If you don't like her, don't like her, but. Oh, first off, let me talk about Monica really quickly. The real life Monica was based off of a student. Her name was Nancy Kane. I feel like they were playing some of this stuff up. They were kind of making Stacy look like a dick. Like she would make her look like a jerk. Girl. Yeah. Like I feel like I don't know, you know, how it happened, obviously, but I just have a, I don't think it was this bad. Like I feel like this was a one sided portrayal of, you know, the events that took place. They did both of the characters. You said that um, Angela, she wasn't that unpopular. And you feel that Stacy wasn't that much of a B-I-T-C-H. So, I mean, I don't know that she was or not, but I don't know. It just seemed a little bit like even like she had like Tori. I don't know if that was, you know, like some of Tori's acting choices, but she like she would have like this smug look on her face at certain times. Like this look. I'm like, she's really playing it up. Balance, writers, balance. That's when Principal Sachs walks in and he refers to Stacy as the prettiest office assistant. This is something I don't think could happen these days because you just can't say certain things anymore because people would get like offended on a sue or want to claim sexual harassment. Yeah, you can't say stuff like that. Not about a 15 year old. You know, Jamie, she comes in the office and she informs like that little trio that there's an overnight ski trip that's going to be taking place in Timberland. 
And Jamie, she kind of encourages Angie to go on a trip so that they can get caught up or reacquainted. And Angela agrees to go, even though, you know, she doesn't really have the means to pay for the trip, pay for the ski equipment. At this point, she doesn't even have her mom's, you know, permission. Speaking of which, we flash or we move forward to Sunday Mass. Angela is with her mom. And she asks her about the trip. And, you know, her mom is very, we haven't talked about that, but she's very traditional. She's very, what's the word? Religious? Dang. Old school? No, we talk about Catholic people. Conservative? Devout? Dang, I can't think of the word. But she's a very... um. De- we can say devout, like mama. Always praying <laughs> with the rosy breed. <laughs> in the Bible. Yeah. yeah, yeah. She reminded me of mama a lot, like, mm-hmm. in that aspect. I know, I know one thing. She, mama would never let us go on no ski trip. I'll tell you that much right now. Do you remember when mama finally let us spend the night over at someone's house? Yes. We but had listen. Beg. Yes. But I get it now, though. I get it. Uh, yeah. 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 It. Yeah. I mean, you understand. I get it. You know, letting your kids go to somebody's house is like. It's a big deal because you don't. Yeah. It's a trust. It's a huge thing. Like you are trusting somebody with the safety, you know, of your children. You don't know what, you know, especially when you don't know the other parents, you don't know what the that environment is like. Right. She let us go. But I think that's because that, that's it had, we were all there, you know, it was the three of us. So, you know, that had a lot to do with it. And plus we kept begging her. We wore her down. <laughs> it wasn't that, but it was like her significant other at the time. He was like, he told her, he told, he was like, just let them go. I remember just being on the floor like, please, please, come <laughs> go, please, please. One and only time, guys. One and only time. But um, it was fun though. It was a good time. Absolutely. Did but, sleep. Um, it was so fun. Yeah. 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 And I remember we had sausages. That's this this is back when I wasn't a vegetarian, guys, but we had sausages the next morning. Her mom made us sausage. They were so delicious. No, I'm cracking up, guys. She's talking about meat being so delicious. And All right. He's been a vegetarian for so long. Oh yeah. Anyway, and let's not forget that. I know, I know, I know. I already know. You know, talk talking about this ham from Christmas, a few Christmases ago that I just kept saying. It was at the Thanksgiving or Christmas. Go ahead. Oh, okay. One of those. And I just kept saying it, was, it smells so good. It smells so good. I, I don't want to eat it. It was just like, <laughs> it's a sensory thing, man. Her mom, like, you know, I don't think we ever get a name. They just refer to him as father, but um, they're talking to the priest. And at one point he tells, he tells her mom that's important to be flexible. Her mom, you know, agrees to allow Angela to go on a ski trip. And of course, Angie, she is talking to Jill and she's still ever the optimist. And she's telling her it's going to be a great year. And this is when, you know, reality sets in and she realizes she cannot afford the ski trips because it's $75 for ski boots. Oh no, it's $75 for the trip. And she has to pay for ski boots and clothes. And that's when we get this sort of earning it montage. We see her babysitting, washing a car. We see a little bit more babysitting. What else do we see? We see her scraping paint off the side of a house. Let's just call it other odd jobs. (sighs) I'm like, okay. But, yeah, um, like you have a 15-year-old scrape the old wall. I mean, really. <laughs> I guess they wanted to show us she was working hard. At this point, she has gotten, you know, enough money to pay for the trip. Mm, so we think. No, she got enough money to pay for the trip. I mean, she pay couldn't get... the trip, yes. Yeah. Okay. Stop putting me off. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> and, you know, she couldn't exactly afford the latest, most fashionable ski equipment that she wanted. So, you know, that's when Jill suggests that, you know, they, she borrow a jacket and then they rent the equipment. 
You want to know something? The outfit that they were looking at at the ski shop, I didn't realize that, what's her name? Stacy Had the outfit on to like yeah. the second or third time I watched the movie. Mm-hmm. But that that jacket that um Angie had, it was hideous. It was she said bad. she looked like a pear. Yeah. I'm gonna have to agree with her on that. It was ugly. But Jill, being her friend in true fashion, she just told her friend that she looks fine and that no one's gonna care how she looks. Mm-hmm. But Angela thought otherwise. Mm-hmm. I care. Boys care. And she was right. She was right. And Jill reminds her how hard that she worked for the money and that she needs to go and have a good time because she's so supportive, yo. I'm like, you know what? Like, that was really nice. Like I keep calling her <laughs> practical, but she is really a true friend. You can tell What's that she cares about Angela. I wish I had a friend like that. Mm-hmm. I don't even have a sister like that. Ooh. Oh. Oh. Okay. Okay. <laughs> I will remember that the next time. The next time. Anyway, Moving on. Moving on. Exactly. Moving on. So. Oh, so, cool. go ahead. So um we you know every they're at the I guess the what do you call that the pickup spot where everybody's kind of getting together to go in the van to go on the trip and we see Monica who doesn't really want to go and she's at all her parents you could tell she was forced but what we forgot what I forgot to mention speaking of Monica prior to this Nancy Monica she was actually popular you know that she was before like in. I guess about eighth grade, ninth grade, she and Stacy were actually friends. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And they went to like the school dances and they hung out and they had a good relationship. She just, I guess she just got to a point where she just didn't want to be a part of that crowd. She just wanted to do her own thing. She wanted to be an individual and she started to listen to, what did they call it? New wave music, like Duran Duran, I think she said, like that type of music. She wasn't a goth. She was more like a new wave, whatever that is. I, I Honestly, I don't know what that is, but maybe that's an 80s thing. And that was a town where if you stood out too much, you were ostracized. Nowadays, more so people tend to be you know, encouraged to be a little bit different or it's not seen as bad. But back in 85, nah. Back at the pickup site, Angela's mom embarrasses her. Ew! Her mom... Like moms do, well, to their young kids anyway, licks her fingers trying to, what, fix her hair or her eyebrows? And the look that she gave her mom is priceless. She's <laughs> like, did you just effing do that in front of my friends? Like, are you serious? That was gross. Oh, my gosh. That was gross. She actually wanted to kill her. Yeah. No one, Angela, maybe she did in that moment. Mm-hmm. We're in the, I don't know what you want to call it, we're in the cabin or the girls' room where a bunch of them are sharing a room. And some of the people that share in the room include Monica, Angie, who else? Stacy, Jamie, Meredith, you know, a bunch of those girls. Courtney. And okay. So she decides, Stacy, that it is cool to look through Monica's journal. To invade Monica's privacy. And, you know, so she's reading it. And at this point, this is when Monica kind of walks in. So what do you suppose Monica was scribbling in that book of hers? I don't know. She's still in the shower? Let's find out. (laughs) You wouldn't. (sighs) Bedtime story, girl. Okay. Once upon a time, there was a very strange little girl named Monica. Her face was very, very white, and her clothes were very, very black. Now, Monica was so weird that none of the other little girls would play with her. So she made her diary her constant companion. 
Here's what she had to say to him. <laughs> Dear diary, I'm sitting in the back of a van on my way to Timberland, all because my parents want me to fit in. Fit in with Stacy Lockwood and her toadies. <laughs> I just as soon kill myself. Be a real contribution to society. <laughs> okay. She thinks she is so cool, but I'll bet she's still a virgin. Oh, now we're getting to the meat of the story. Come on, Stacy, that stuff's private. Well, excuse me. What are you, anyhow, Monica's guardian angel? Back to the story. She thinks she is so cool, but I'll bet she's still a virgin. You colossal bitch! Hi, Monica. We were just, you know, feeling out the texture of your probes. Here. Monica, just let it go. Let it go. She didn't mean anything by it. You'd like to kill her. No, I don't mean that. You're just angry. But would a want to be like you know about it anyway, huh? Go on. Go. Get away from me. We're back in liquor boots. That's what you're dying to do anyway, isn't it? And, you know, she snatches her journal from her and she's pissed off. She's ready to kill her. <laughs> they really drove that home, huh? So, Nick, and of course- did say that a couple times. I could kill you. I mean, she did say at one point, I think she wrote in her journal, like Nancy Kane, actually, she wrote down that she, I want to see her blood drip, 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 drip. So she did write that in real life. You know, she really did not care for Stacy at all. Mm. Yeah. I'm like, that's a bit dark, Nancy Kane. That's a bit dark. Oh, so at this point, um, you know, Monica's like super upset. And Angie, I guess she decides like she wants to be a peacemaker. So she tries, she gently tries to pull her away and tells, she's telling her, you know, Stacy doesn't mean anything by it. And Monica looks at her like, excuse me, you want to be? Why don't you go lick her boots? That's all you're good for anyway. And that's when we see... Uh, Tori Spelling or Stacy staring like, like shooting daggers at uh, Angie because, she, yes, she didn't like the fact that, I don't know, I guess she felt it was some sort of a betrayal. I guess. Because, I mean, she didn't say anything bad about Stacy. Just she said Stacy didn't mean anything by it. Mm-hmm. It's not like she said she's not worth it. Mm-hmm. She just said Stacy didn't mean anything by it. All right, so it's the next morning, and oh my gosh, she comes out with her ski outfit. She comes out looking like a pear. Hideous. And she's a little unsure, uncomfortable. You know, she looks like she had to mentally prepare to come out. Like she coached herself. I worked hard for this. I deserve this. <laughs> <laughs> she's like, that's what she looks like. But um, Stacy comes in and just rips on her. She chews her up and spits her out. She's like, nice outfit. Where'd you get it from? The thrift store? Ouch. I heard that this real, like, this actual situation, like, as it happened, Kirsten, she actually made an offhanded comment about her skis. It wasn't quite as much of a dig as it was presented to be in this movie. Like, that's why I say some of the things I feel like they either exaggerated or they kind of, like, played it up or they kind of made it up. But I don't think it was as bad as was presented (laughs) in this movie. All right, so after Stacey's, her comments... Um, the other girls start laughing and then they all exit. Jamie stays behind briefly to try to comfort her friend. She then leaves. Um, kind of. She was just like, why'd you have to fight with her? I'm like, she didn't fight with her. I mean, I get what she's saying. And she said, and then she tells her, you know, stay out of the way. She'll yeah. just forget about it. Right. I mean, she's trying to offer her friend some advice. Like she wants to be cool with, you know, Stacy and her gang, but she also is 
Angela's friend, you know, mm. just giving her some advice. And then the giant pair with legs, she just stays there and just kind of mopes, I guess. So that's what I'm thinking. I'm like, did she ever make it out there? Or she just stayed and wasted her time earning the money and the money that she spent on whatever she purchased. Whatever she I would hope she eventually like enjoyed right? it. I would hope so. All right. So back at the school, uh, Mr. Sachs is giving an announcement. He announces that cheerleader tryouts are going to be happening. And after the announcement, he tells Stacy that she is the kind of girl that they need to represent the school. Angela then tells him that she's going to be trying out too. And as the principal, he's supposed to be encouraging, but his response was dry. It was a little lackluster, you know, mm. like, mm-hmm. sure, try out, you know, good for you. <laughs> That's cute. Right, right. And so the next scene, Jamie, I think her parents are there too. And the priest are having dinner at Angela's house. And the priest, he asks Angela about school. She seemed excited to tell him her plans. She's applied for the yearbook staff. She's trying out for cheerleader. She wants to be a lark. Um, he doesn't know what the lark is. And I don't think we actually went into what the larks actually are. In actuality, they were called the Bobo Links. And according to medium.com, the Bobo Links were a volunteer group designed to organize fundraisers and other charitable events in the community. It was allegedly a sorority dedicated to parties and fun. Yeah, they did mention briefly in the movie that um, the Larkspur is a social services club that, you know, uh, raised money for the rehab center. So that's something that we learned about them. It was a very sort of like elitist club. And the Bobo Links more so, it was mostly for like the affluent popular kids. And a lot of the other kids at that school felt like they were very stuck up and snobby. But yeah, they also mentioned that in order to be a lark, you have to be nominated. Mm-hmm. Angela mentions that one of Jamie's friends is going to nominate the both of them. So later on that night, Angela is laying in bed and five girls scare her in the middle of the night by screaming larks. And that's, you know, the nomination process. We cut to them being at the home of somebody who seems like a senior lark. And this, this this is like an anointment sort of the ceremony and they're given instruction. Basically, they have to do a series of initiation rituals. Mm-hmm. First, they have like mayonnaise slathered on their heads. They also in, in real life, they cracked an egg over their head and they had to dress up in their, you know, their mother's ugliest clothes. Let me just go back, which is OK, because mayonnaise and eggs we use as conditioner. <laughs> so it's like they're doing them a favor. <laughs> Yeah, those bad 80s perms. No, you were saying that they had to dress up in their mother's clothes. I, I wasn't aware of that. Yeah, they're, uh, her ugliest clothes. And get kisses for a dime. The way it's portrayed here, they they would go up to, you know, they would knock on the window. See, this is something that definitely couldn't happen in 2021. I'll tell you that much right now. 15-year-old girls knocking on these grown men's, you know, car windows and kissing them on the cheek. So Stacy does it. Of course, it, you know, the, the guy allows her to do it. <laughs> But when Angie does it, like this old man, he just I said the writers are really trying to drive home the disparity between Stacy and Angela. I'm like, okay, guys, you laying it on a little thick there. But uh, she just stands there just looking real like feeling like real dumb. And of course they they cut to uh, Stacy and she has this so this smug look on her face. I just wanted to just knock it off her face. I'm like, stop it, Tori. God, are you portraying this girl like that? You know, I don't after- know what's worse, being rejected by an old guy or just some random guy. 
I mean, it was both, right? An old old random. I don't think it happened like this in real life. I really don't. I think this is just I'm playing it up. I really don't think this happened for real. <laughs> but um, it was funny though. So later on, we're back with uh, Teresa. She's at home. I'm sorry. We're back with Angela. Yes. She's at home with Teresa. And this is when she kind of, we learn a little bit more about what's going on, the inner workings of Angela's mind. She's like, do you ever wish you were someone else? Angela? Yeah. Mom said that you made the lunch. Congratulations. Thanks. Great. Terry, did you ever wish you were someone else? Yeah, all the time. Why? There's this girl. Sometimes she's not very nice, but she's so good at everything. What things? Everything. People things. You're good at people things. No, I'm not. People like you. She doesn't. Look, Angela. We'd all like to be someone else at some time or another. We are who we are. Just accept it and do the best with what God gave you. I won't. I want to be better than just me. You know, she asks, she poses this question to Stacy. I'm sorry. She poses this question to Teresa. And, you know, that's when she talks about how Stacy is good at everything. And Teresa basically gives us, gives her like good advice. Like we are who we are. Best thing you do is accept it and do the best with what God gave you. And of course, Angela, like that is not something that she wants to hear. She's like, I can't and I won't. She wants to be better than just herself. Mm-hmm. She wants to be Stacy. She's very, very, very insecure. And at that age, most of us are, you know, to varying degrees, mm-hmm. some more so than others. She never seems content with herself. But I guarantee you there were people in that school who looked up to Bernadette and probably wanted to be like Bernadette. They probably saw her as somebody who was popular. And even though she wasn't rich, she was able to kind of navigate that section or that sector and like do it successfully. I guarantee like nobody's ever happy. We always want what we don't, like you said, we always want what we don't have, or we always want a little bit more. Nothing is ever good enough. Okay. So Angela is in her classroom, her English class. She's there with Stacy Court and others. She's reading a poem and Court mocks her while she's reading the poem and other students, they they, they they begin to giggle, which catches the attention of Angela and the teacher. And the teacher, she is upset, annoyed, and she tells Courtney to stand up and read his poem. I guess she finds his poem offensive or inappropriate. I really didn't get it. So she asks him to read his poem to Mr. Sachs. It was so corny. Every joke about in this movie, every quip, everything was just so corny. <laughs> Stacy, she then reads her poem. Stacy, why don't you come in? Face like a ghost, hair black as sin. The witch of Santa Mara scratches her chin. She cackles, she gloats, she summons her broom and flies like a banshee right out of the room. Please, Stacy Lockwood. Monica. Stacy, I think you'd better apologize. I'm sorry, Mrs. Chadfield. It was just a poem. It wasn't about her. And as she reads it, it becomes clear that it's about Monica. And the class, the students, they giggle. The teachers tell Stacy to apologize, but she innocently tells her teacher that the poem wasn't about Monica. 
But then she, like you said, she shoots Monica like a smug look, which tells us otherwise, you know? And the bell rings and Stacy gets to leave without apologizing. And then we are in the auditorium. The gym yeah, gym. they you know, are at tryouts know. or they're practicing for tryouts. We can't do it. Let's go. Warriors, fire it up. That's the most flavorless cheering. It's the most unseasoned cheering I've ever seen. But um, Angie is told that she's not getting it and like she's a little too loose. Uh, I thought she looked super stiff. Um, the chair asked Stacy to come down and demonstrate. And she's just as generic. I mean, I know like, you know, obviously the real life, you know, subjects were probably a heck of a lot better, but like, I don't know, watching this just seemed like a joke. Even when she walked up to like uh try out, she just had this look and she was just like, it just is this, oh my gosh, she was so cocky. I'm like, stop it. Like she's like, Tori was really laying on thick. That's why I just, I didn't care for her choices as an actor. So that was that. And of course, you know, we got a, you know, a shot of a, Angie looking all sad and feeling, you know, rejected or... She looks longing, longingly at uh, Stacy, just wanting to be her, you mm-hmm. know? At this point, they're in the hallway and Angie, she is so excited about uh, what's about to happen. This is the yearbook results. You know, she's telling Jill that they're going to be posted and um, the staff is going to be posted outside the journalism room. And they like kind of rush over there. And that's when Angie realizes that she actually doesn't make the cut. I'm like, yo, yearbook staff, is that competitive? Exactly. Not my high school. And I don't understand why you would want, you would not want someone who's good at writing to be on the yearbook committee. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's why it's, it, it was just all like they catered to the popular kids. That's what right. that all seemed to be about, which is really sad. But, um, you know, of course the hair goes Jill. I'm like, poor Jill. Can't you just be a regular teenager? She's over here giving you know, Angie, another pep talk, telling her how fabulous she is, how awesome and amazing she is, how talented she is. I'm like, let this girl just, just, she just wants to be a regular teenager. Like, it's not her job to constantly be. Angela's chair coach. Mm-hmm. She's like, Angela, what else do you want? And the look that she gave Jill, she's like, I want to be the yearbook staff. I want to be like Stacey Lockwood. I want everything, you know? And like, mm-hmm. she just feels so let down or defeated and she runs away. Well, we're in the next scene. All the students there in the auditorium and they're doing the closing assembly. And this is where they're going to announce the four new cheerleaders. And Angela, she's so hopeful. I don't know why. I have no idea. Did she forget how her tryout went? Like, hello? The coach told you that you weren't as That good. wasn't the tryout. That was, um, I, don't, I think that was practice for the tryouts. Oh, I thought yeah. that was a tryout, and then they had another tryout later on that. No, I think they, she was just—I think she was just practicing. All right, so the four new cheerleaders, um, like I said, they're going to be announced, and she is hoping that she's going to be one of the four. The first three girls are called up one by one. Neither one of them is Angela or Stacy, but somehow Angela thinks that she's going to be the fourth person, not Stacy. I don't think she did. After the third name, she kind of, like, she just, I felt like she had this, yeah, you need to watch it again. You need to watch it again. After, like, the third name, like, her face kind of dropped. She knew. I I just want to talk quickly about how it was in Miramonte High. It was like, this thing was like a big deal. The applicants, they actually had to write an essay explaining what they could add to the school. Then the parents had to sign an agreement to spend $500 for cheerleading uniforms and cheerleading camp. 
which is the equivalent of a, like $1,200 today. The girls, they were graded by or judged by 20 judges. And it was the ceremony and once they announced them, it was a, like an Academy Award style ceremony where names were picked from an envelope and they were each given flowers and presented in front of the school. I'm like, really? This must be one of the chair teams that actually makes it to the uh, the chair competitions. Maybe. I have, I didn't, that did not happen at our school. I didn't hear anything about that, but like this was, it was that, that seems way over the top for high school cheerleaders, but Okay. And so Mr. Sachs, he finally reads the fourth name. And guess who it is? Stacey Lockwood. Yes. And the look on Angela's face of just being let down. You know, the look of defeat on her face. I just felt so bad for her. But Jill, of course, of course, of course, Jill. She's trying Good old Jill. To, she's trying to comfort her friend who's crying and at this point has locked herself in the bathroom, in the bathroom stall. So Jill tells her that, you know, she's got to go because her mom is waiting. Chill out, look, man. You on your own. Yeah. And uh, I mean, she's, of course, we know that she's probably been there for some time. But then, like you said, she has to go. And um, Angela is now walking home. Um, She's walking alone. She's in her feelings, you know. And her sister Mm -hmm. pulls up alongside her and convinces her to get in the car. And Terry, who begins cutting cucumbers with a resale. Didn't she call her Terry? Okay, maybe she did. Yeah. Terry, who begins cutting cucumbers with a very long kitchen knife, offers Angela, who hates cucumbers, a slice of cucumber. So this scene, I think, is done because Angela... It's foreshadowing. (laughs) Right. um, Terry, she testified that she usually did keep a long kitchen knife in the car, the long kitchen knife that is going to be the murder weapon. Um, the prosecution doesn't believe it, and they're trying to convince the judge that it was premeditated murder. I um, read that she said that she may have in the the courtroom trial, but um, I don't believe it. <laughs> I don't believe it. I believe that she didn't want to lie, but she's trying to give her sister an out. I don't. I don't believe it at all. But um, we're back at Jill's house. Jill and Angie are kind of hanging out, getting drunk. Having a good time, I guess. I don't know. And at this point, Jill invites uh, Angela to a party where, you know, she mentions some guy named Roger that we never meet, but I'm um, saying that he's having a party and, you know, come over. And then that's when Angie has this bright idea to invite Stacy to the party. She figures that, hey, if I invite her to this party with this cool older crowd, then she'll see me as cool. And then we, we, we could become friends and yada, yada, yada. So that is her plan. So Angie, she calls Stacy's mom from a payphone. And she tells her that they are having a like surprise. Oh my gosh. I just heard you say payphone. Do you remember those? Do they still have them? Ones that work? You know, we had this conversation like episode one or something like that. Really? (laughs) Yeah, we did. I don't know. It's like every time I hear the word payphone, it's like, oh my gosh, do they still exist? Mm -hmm. You know what? I think I did drive by one recently and I thought, uh, well, I, I assumed it was broken. Because the handset was just swinging in the wind. So, yeah, she called, She tells her, Stacey, I'm sorry, she tells Stacey's mom that they are having a surprise dinner for Larks on Saturday and that she wants to invite Stacey and that Stacey should be ready by nine. She should wear something casual but nice and that she would pick her up. And of course, you know, her mom is, you know, she sounds excited. I guess she figures it's a thing. And she tries to ask her for her name. But of course, Angela hangs up before she gives that information. We cut to... Angela's mom, Ms. Del Vecchio, she's driving 
her to what appears to be like a babysitting job. And she convinces her mom to leave the car there for safety. Her assertion is that, hey, if we leave a car in the driveway, then, you know, you know, any potential bad guys will see that there's somebody home and they'll be less likely to target this house. But I don't know if it was like a somebody, like a producer, a PA or whatever, but they there was already a car in the driveway and they forgot I to take it out. Yeah. That bothered me so bad. <laughs> oh, that just irked me. I'm like, how big this is like how 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 was this oversight made? This is a big, huge, two-ton piece of steel. Wait. Anyway. <laughs> I think I have a different oversight than you. You know the car was in a driveway, which it should be, because she has to go babysit, meaning the parents are still there. Oh, that, that makes sense. That makes but sense. The oversight that I saw is that instead of uh the mom driving the pulling the car up in the driveway, she left it on the street. When you just pull it up in a driveway, because Angela was saying that if people see the car in the driveway. Yeah, true. And she ran to the to the back door. She never put the car in the driveway. That was what I noticed. That's true. So at this point, Angela, she goes to pick Stacy up. And when Stacy sees her, she has this look of such disappointment on her face. Like, oh, it's, it's you. you. At this point, we're seeing the film. We're seeing what we saw in the beginning of the film from a different perspective. So we're seeing Stacy. She's smoking weed in a car. From what I read, this didn't appear to be true, based on what some of her friends had said. Like Stacy, I'm sorry, Kirsten didn't do drugs in this film. Like, she, uh, what's her name? Angie. She declines. People have said that you know she actually did do drugs to fit in. Sometimes Angela, not Stacy. I felt like that was Bernadette's attempt to make Kirsten look like this co- kind of rebellious sort of. You know, not so wholesome teen by insinuating that Stacy was some sort of a pothead. So Stacy, as she's smoking, she's talking to her about how she, you know, she's trying to learn how she was invited to this party, how she knows these people. And Angela kind of lets it slip like she wasn't invited. She was kind of invited through a friend of a friend. And Stacy is upset. She's like, you're going to crash this party. You want to take me along for the ride? And that's kind of where it gets a little bit out of control and Angela is super creepy in this moment. <laughs> she is. She is. And I think there was actually some speculation that Angela was interested in Stacy. I think that may have had something to do with why Bernadette reacted the way that she did because... Back then? Know, she, she can't... Yeah. Not only that, but she came from a very religious family. Mm-hmm. You know, so there was a bit of like this sort of gay panic thing that kind of took over her like god forbid people find out or suspect rather that she was interested in another woman like the worst thing to her would be to be you know unpopular like that was like the end of the world to her she didn't want to be like uh nancy she's telling her how much she admires her her pretty how how pretty she was how confident she was i'm like yo angie Mm -hmm. relax But okay, so this movie, like I said, like this perspective is more from Angie's perspective. So we see, we see her driving, and but we hear the voices, like she's imagining the conversation that Stacy is going to be having with people when she goes to school the next day. You wouldn't believe what happened to me last night, Angela. That nerd, nerd isn't even half of it. Then you're gonna love this one. She tells me how pretty and funny and confident I am. <laughs> I mean, I always knew she was weird, but geez, it was like she was asking me out on a date or something. <laughs> oh, wait till the word gets out on this one. She might as well just dig a hole and pull the dirt in after. <laughs> you know, they're gonna be saying things like, um, 
like she can imagine Stacy saying, "Oh, sh- huh? What you say? She's weird." Yeah, she and also she was, it was like she was ask, asking me out on a date or something, mm-hmm. and that just kind of she gets super triggered. We saw we see her, you know, um, go up to the house. Stacy's parents weren't home, so she decides to go to a neighbor's house to wait for her parents. So while Stacy is walking up to the neighbor's house, that's when Angela comes and approaches her, and she just kind of starts stabbing her. She's and- like, "I would have took you home." <laughs> <laughs> Don't do that. Oh my God. <laughs> and, you know, of course, you know, we actually we know what happens. So we could just kind of cut to the next day. Oh, yeah. Like the night that this happened, Bernadette, she went home. She hid the knife. She took a walk with her mom and her family dog. Mm-hmm. And then the next day, she washed the knife and she threw a t shirt and some sweats in a garbage dump at the local, you know, swim club. Didn't she what? just wash the knife off with water? Yeah. Okay. This had to be the 80s. <laughs> like, we know we got to use bleach. Come on mm. now. And even when we use bleach, what is it? Luminol still picks it up. Yeah, we know we shouldn't be stabbing people with a... <laughs> yeah, that too. But I mean, household. If you do, <laughs> but if you do, you got to at least try bleach. Or at least, like, not use something from your kitchen drawer. Like, I'm just saying. Or not put it back in the kitchen drawer. That's disgusting and very unhygienic, by the way. Okay. Oh, I'm sorry. That's that's what I picked up from that. But, um. I didn't even, I didn't even pick up on that. That's because you're nasty and unhygienic. Shut up. But anyway, the next day, um, Angela, she's taking a shower. Her mom comes in telling her that Jamie has to speak with her. Um, she gets out, she takes the call, but she already knows what Jamie's going to tell her. The next scene is where Angela and Jill, they're in Jill's room watching TV and a news reporter on TV is given the description of the suspect. And Jill says that the description is like half of the people in their town and Angela's guilty conscience. She's like, um, well, I fit the description. And I just- yeah, the description from the newscaster was it, the assailant was a teenage girl with shoulder length hair and drives a Nova and she was wearing red pants. Mm-hmm. When yeah, Alexander Arnold, his description was she was a round faced, chunky blonde wearing a yellow shirt and faded red sweatpants. And she was driving a Ford Pento. Okay. Um, I don't know. I just thought I'd throw that in there. You sound like, okay, Anne. (laughs) Sorry. Jill, 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 Jill. She immediately quells her fears that she would ever be considered a suspect. She's like, she's like the nicest person ever. You know what I mean? She's like, you're the nicest girl in the mirror. Nobody's going to suspect you. Mm -hmm. Dun, dun, dun. Cut to the funeral and Angie's crying. I'm like, why is like, is she crying because someone she admired is dead? Is she crying for the killer? Is she crying because she is, she's just holding, you know, uh, keeping up pretenses? This is when Meredith, you know, leans in and she's like, I know we loved her too. So the students at Cinemira start, start to be questioned by the authorities. At this point, we are dealing with Sergeant Denon. And he asks her for what her alibi was. And her alibi is that she was babysitting for someone named Mrs. Mrs. Moore from 830 to 1130. Rookie move. Like, even for 1984, like, are you serious? You know that they're going to check your alibi. And you know that these people are going to say, hey, she was not here babysitting for us. But that's the thing. They kind of didn't. What do you mean? In real life, 
they didn't really check check her alibi. This wasn't. Um, I mean, I don't know if you want me to get into it, but um, it wasn't until her parents, her parents, um, Kirsten's parents, the Costases, they hired a private investigator by the name of Elliot Friedman. During the investigation, he rechecked alibis, and the woman, uh, Joanna Weems, that um, that Bernadette stated that she was babysitting for, stated that Bernadette hadn't babysat for her for a year. Now that was the rookie move. Why would you pick someone that you hadn't babysat for in a year? So, you know, that's when, you know, the PI, that's when he told the detectives that Bernadette was lying. Um, She had taken a lie detector test. She passed the test and the FBI, that's, they reread it and it came back that she was lying. We have to be mindful. Like I already today in 2021, we consider or the courts consider lie detector tests to be unreliable. I can't imagine how unreliable they were back in 1985. You know, this was like, mind you, this was like six months after the murder that all this stuff kind of took place. So she gotten away, she'd gotten away with it for quite some time. Yeah. So that's kind of how that came to be. They had dedicated 4,000 man hours. They had followed a thousand leads. They interviewed over 800 people. They checked over 750 pintos. When to you be got rich. Money, that's what I was about yep. to say. When you got money, that's what happens. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. So after the lie detector test, you see that she's walking down the hallway with her head down. It's like she's walking down the hall of shame. And I kind of feel sorry for her. This perspective, man. They really got you. <laughs> and Kelly Martin, not just that, but Kelly Martin, she just makes you want to just wrap your arms around her and hug her. Doesn't she? Like something about yeah. her. Like, ugh, she's just so sweet. Um, During the interview, Angie states that she didn't know Stacy very well. Or when Sergeant Denon asks Angie why he thinks someone want to kill her, and you know, Angie's like, I don't know. She's very popular. Maybe the most popular girl in sophomore class. Maybe it was someone she put down, made jokes about others. She made jokes at other people's expenses. She was very popular. Like that's really like the only adjective she could use to describe her was that she was popular. Mm-hmm. Like I don't know if this happened like this in real life. If these were actual, like, or lifted from her actual statements that she made. But she was really, I don't know, preoccupied with this popularity thing. Like, to what seemed like an unhealthy degree. But, yeah, you were saying she took the lie detector test. Yeah, now we're two months later. So, Angela, she's sitting at home with her mother in the living room listening to a news broadcast of an update on the Stacey Lockwood murder. And she appears to be nervous. So the Lockwoods, they've broken their silence and they're giving a press conference at this time, um, trying to help find their daughter's killer. They say something like the new school, I think the, the new school year is about to start the next day. And so they say the new school year is about to start and they believe that the killer is among the student body. I just want to talk just really quickly about how um, her father in particular was, um, I tried to find clips of her parents. I could only see what was in one of the um, documentaries that I was watching, but he also described her as popular, all-American, establishment. And he said that the killer was anti-establishment. Like, that was so weird to me. I don't know. Like, everybody has their own, they grieve in their own way. But I just felt like it was so weird. Like, when he was describing his daughter, he wasn't describing her as a person. Like, that's something that kind of stood out to me a little bit. Or maybe he did later on in the interview or it wasn't. That didn't, that didn't strike you in any way? I mean, not to the depths that you're describing, but I did question why did he use the words establishment and and, and anti-establishment. That conference, it's moved Angela to confess. So she calls her friend Jill, but Jill doesn't answer. So that doesn't happen. Now we're in school. Um, It's the first day. And Mr. Sachs 
this is oh this is another reason why I don't like uh why my opinion of Mr. Sachs changed. So I believe it's the first day of school and Mr. Sachs, he's holding an assembly and he's talking about the murder. And in the auditorium, there's Monica. And because of the statements that Monica has made in the past and because she's different, she stands out, people believe that she's the killer and they start throwing things at her. Also, what had happened was her parents advised her not to take a lie detector test. So... When she, I'm talking Nancy Kane, obviously. So when the cops asked her to take a lie detector test, I'm assuming a lot of the other students did. She declined, and honestly, I I agree with what her parents did. I wouldn't I wouldn't tell my I would tell my kids not to take a lie detector test. So I feel like her unwillingness to take the test may have added to how everybody felt about her. So like they, you know, in in addition to this, you know, I want to see her blood drip, 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 drip. And how much she expressed her dislike of, you know, Kirsten and whatnot. Like that just added to everybody's suspicion of her. Angela, she sees them throwing the, I guess, paper or just items at Monica. I don't know if she feels guilty that people suspect Monica or that she's relieved that they don't suspect her. They're not just throwing paper. They're throwing spitballs. Ew. The next scene, we have Angela and Jill. They're walking on the school grounds. Angela tells Jill that she's now a candy striper. She is a pair counselor, and we already know that she's a lark. And I think her guilty conscience is making her overcompensate, causing her to overcompensate um, with these community service based mm-hmm. people. And then you see her, well, you see a group of teenagers chasing Monica down the hall. Oh, yeah. We missed, we missed something really quickly. Oh, at one point, the, the larks get together and, you know, Jamie proposes that they disband. And this is when Angie fights to keep the larks together. She's saying that Stacey basically wanted it this way. She wouldn't want them to, like, throw in the towel. And she gets voted secretary treasurer. Oh, hmm. Interesting. Convenient, right? Hmm. See, somebody's life has changed for the better since Stacey has passed. But, you know, whatever. So, you know, we see things that, you know, as you alluded to, um, and Angela's life changes. There's she's there's this guy, his name is Darren. He invites her to a party. And, you know, later on we see Angela Angela peer counseling. And she is wearing a letterman's jacket. So which leads us to believe that, you know, they're an item. So, mm-hmm. you know, she, she has a boyfriend and, you know, her life is on the upswing. Mm-hmm. But the, the interesting or ironic thing rather is when she is doing her peer counseling duty, she is speaking to some student named Alicia. And Alicia is basically like, who are you? Like, you're, uh, you know, this doesn't mean anything to you. You're basically part of the popular crowd. You're just one of them. This is just another notch in your gun belt. You don't really care about me or what my problems are. Now, Angela is being seen more so as one of them rather than, you know what I mean? She's seen more as more of the in crowd rather than, you know, somebody who was on the outside. And this is where we learn, like, she's also doing candy striping. Like you said, she is basically overcompensating for, you know, she's trying to do these you know, good deeds to kind of mask her guilt, or I don't even know if she feels guilty because the cop said like when they were interviewing her, she didn't express any sort of doubt or any, any guilt, anything. She was just completely stoic. So that's one of the reasons why they didn't suspect her. So we're in gym class now, the girls are stretching and, you know, they're gossiping and talking, whatever you want to call it. And they're talking about how the cops are interviewing all the larks again. The FBI. And- Oh, I'm sorry. The FBI. Oh, yes. This is um Sheriff Rainey. Who's Sheriff Rainey? 
Sheriff Richard Rainey, he was the he was the sheriff who was investigating the case. At one point, he just I guess he felt like it was beyond him and he needed to call in help and that's when he contacted the FBI and FBI special agent Robert Gastis who kind of took over the case. But yes, you're right. They had interviewed like 100 students at the school including the the Larks and they kind of interview, interviewed the Larks a couple of times and at this yeah. point, we also learned that Monica dropped out of school. She actually had an alibi. You know, she had originally lied to the cops. She told them that she was doing one thing, but she was actually at her boyfriend's house. And his mother was actually there for part of the evening. So she was basically alibied out. The cops weren't even looking at her as a suspect at this point. You know, the lynch mob being what it is, teenagers, everybody wants to point fingers. You know, so Monica, she was she was a scapegoat. Um, We see that, um, you know, JB is standing in front of Monica's locker and the words killer are spray painted on it. And she, this is when Jamie kind of admits that she didn't like Stacey and that maybe the Stacey's killer was someone like her, someone who was afraid to stand up for themselves, someone who didn't care about herself. So, you know, that was kind of a little bit of a foreshadowing as well. She was basically afraid to stand up to her. I feel like in a lot of these sort of cliques that kind of happens a lot. There's one ringleader and the others kind of follow. They don't want to stand out. They don't want to be ostracized. So they kind of go along just, I don't know, they go along to get along more or less. So now we cut to a scene where they are in an office and uh, an FBI agent, Special Agent Gilwood, he's interviewing Angela. And I noted the, the thing that, did that strike you as odd that she didn't have a parent? Cause she's what, like 16 at this point? Right. She didn't have she didn't have a parent, she didn't have a lawyer. I'm assuming that her parents had given permission. But um he basically told her that he wanted to straighten out inconsistencies with Angie's story. He told her also that she failed the polygraph test. And this is when she's trying to kind of, you know, put together the pieces that are unraveling. And she said, Okay, she actually drove to Sierra Lynn to see an R-rated movie. And, you know, he's asking her, trying to, I guess, get a feel of what she thought about Stacey. And he's like, okay, what kind of girl was Stacey? And he's, she's like very popular. Again, this is this, this is adjective that she uses over and over again. You don't have anything nice to say about somebody. Like the only thing you could get, like, I, I don't know if this is how, you know, Bernadette actually was, how she responded to the questions, but that as an interview, that would strike me as very odd. I don't know if I necessarily think that's a negative thing. Her keep describe her continuing to describe her as popular maybe that well that's uh, something that's important to teenagers but like to say it over and over and over again she said it multiple times it's not like she said other things in addition to you know she was nice she was kind she was also popular she just kept saying popular you know she was very popular she was popular she was really you know popular like i just that was very um it was a little it just stood out to me you know maybe i just won't make a good detective cuz i just didn't think anything was wrong with it i mean Watching the movie, I did notice that she just kept saying that over and over again. But as a detective, I don't know if that would strike me as odd. Yeah, you would make a terrible detective. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. No maybes about it. So Gilwood provided a profile description of what the killer must be like and asked her what she think of the profile after hearing it. This is Special Agent Gilwood Angela. He's with the FBI. Here to try to straighten out some inconsistencies in your statement. We checked out your babysitting alibi, Angela. It doesn't wash. And we got another reading of your polygraph test. Do you know what it says? It says you're a liar, Angela. That's a little harsh, Dick. Why don't we let Angela here tell us what really happened that night? 
babysitting. I just, I lied about that because I wanted the car. What did you want the car for? Um, there was this movie playing in, um, in Sierra Linda, and it was, it was R, and I can only see PGs. <laughs> Do you remember the name of it? It was Reckless. But I didn't get to see it because they asked for my ID. <laughs> well, that clears up the problem with the polygraph. But, you know, Angela, you could still help us out. How? You could tell us more about Stacy. What kind of girl she was. She was very popular. Did you like her? Everybody liked her. I think you're mistaken, Angela. Monica Whitley didn't like her. Oh, but Monica didn't. She wouldn't have... But someone did. Someone disliked her enough to kill her. In fact, the Bureau has worked up what we call a profile, which is a um, description of what we think the girl must be like. Would you care to hear it? Sure. I guess. Let me see. Ooh, a lot of words here. You know how psychiatrists are. And I remember a passage near the end where they finally get down to it. Ah, yeah, here it is, here it is. She is the same age as her victim and a member of the same peer group, though her involvement in that group is peripheral rather than central. She's impulsive, emotional, and driven both by fear of inadequacy and a desire for acceptance. While her crime was abrupt, irrational, and disorganized, she is unlikely to exhibit strong emotions when questioned about her possible involvement. It's interesting, isn't it, Angela? What do you think about it? I think it sounds a lot like me. That's what we thought, too. In fact, we've been doing a lot of thinking about it. Look, I'll tell you what. Why don't you go home, think about it over the weekend, and maybe we can talk some more later. And she admitted that the profile sounded like her. I thought that was like, if this happened in real life, dumb. This is actually pretty close to how it happened in real life. And this is why kids need parents when they're being interviewed. This is also why kids shouldn't kill other kids. But yes, I agree. I get that. Yeah. I, I, I agree. This At this point, if you recall, I had, I had stated the Costas had hired a private investigator. He had basically dismantled her alibi. He had um, had the FBI basically essentially reread her polygraph. And they had, at this point, determined that she was lying. She failed the polygraph test. So they at this point, they suspected that she was it. And the profile fit her to a T. It was so insanely specific. You know, when it had talked about like how she came from like a family, like I think it mentioned like she came from like a family of like a large family, a large Catholic family. It was so specific. Everybody was pointing to, you know, like the other kids at school that they were interviewing, they, they were pointing to Bernadette. So it was basically a foregone conclusion for them. But so. according to the movie, they said that they only had circumstantial evidence. So without her confession, they probably wouldn't have been able to convict her. I know what the movie said, but are we going to listen to Uncle Phil? But I mean, <laughs> I remember I had a, a professor. He was um 
he's a pro- like a prosecutor. And basically said most cases are circumstantial. That, you know, most cases that are one are based on circumstantial evidence. So more often than not, there's not a smoking gun. So I don't know that they would have gotten her. You know, so Uncle Special Agent Uncle Phil, he basically he is I guess No, kind of- not special agent Uncle Phil. Are you serious? <laughs> Whatever, Denning, but um, Gilwood. Uh, uh, okay, he basically he's kind of you know handling her with like kid gloves, and he kind of is feeling sorry for her. Well, at least that's how he's playing it in the interview. But after Angie leaves, he's like, you know, Denning's like, you know, I feel sorry for her, and uh, Angie Phil is like, don't feel sorry for her. Feel sorry for the girl that she killed. One hundred percent. Like you know, what's getting lost in this movie is like someone was killed and someone lost their life over something so nonsensical. But in any case, at this point, she's in the car. Her parents don't see her, but she overhears them talking. And, you know, her father is saying that he thinks that she's possibly ashamed of them. And she never brings anybody over because they don't have much. And her mom's like, well, she has big dreams. And that's how Bernadette was. She aspired to have what her friends had. She was embarrassed by her circumstances. She aspired to have the fancy homes and, you know, sprawling estates and, you know, everything that the other girls or the rich girls in her school had. And she wasn't happy with you know, the nice middle-class bringing, upbringing. She was just a very insecure person. She felt that she was ugly. She felt like she didn't have the right clothes. She felt like she did not measure up to the other girls in her school. And that informed a lot of her decisions. All right. So now we're at Angela's home and there's a pre-Christmas celebration going on with all of her older siblings. And as the party is happening, family, they're taking pictures and she doesn't look happy in any of them. And after the party, she decides to tell her father something, but then she changes her mind. And so Angela begins helping her mom clean up. And then she says to her mom that she wants to talk. But her mom is so exhausted from the party that she says, you know what, let me get ready for bed first and we'll talk later. But by that time, she's fallen asleep already. Yeah, even throughout the whole party, like she just looks so sullen. And this is supposed to be like the celebratory event. Like she's um with her family, with they have a huge family and everybody's happy and she just looks so detached from everything. I'm I sure was she curious. feels like she doesn't deserve to be happy. It's funny because I remember reading that, you know, some sources were saying that she just I mean, I guess you never know what people are doing in the quiet of their own minds and in their own time. But people said that she just seemed like she was cool, like nothing. She seemed unfazed by it all. Like she didn't seem like somebody who was on this major guilt trip. Even like when she was interviewed by the police, she was as cool as a cucumber. Like that's partly why they didn't suspect her. Like she didn't come off as nervous or guilty or any of that. This was a very interesting take. I'm not saying that she didn't feel guilty. I mean, unless she's some sort of sociopath, I'm sure she felt something. But this movie is, in my opinion, sympathetic towards Angela. She later pins a letter that we'll later hear. And she leaves the letter for her mom. And in real life, she told her mom, I'm going to leave, you know, I'm leaving you this letter. Don't read it for 30 minutes. And she ends up going off to school. So her mom, she does what you see in the movie. She reads her Bible and sets her timer. And once that's over, then she reads the letter. And the letter that we hear, we hear her confession. Dear mom and dad, I've been trying to tell you this, but I love you so much and it's so hard. I'm taking the easy way out. I just can't be near you and you see this because I've already caused so much pain. 
The reason why it took so long on Friday is because the FBI man, Mr. Gilwood, thinks I did it. And he is right. I can't bring her back. But I'm so sorry. I would kill myself, except maybe that would hurt you even more. I've been able to live with it for a while, but I can't ignore it. It's too much for me, and I can't be that deceiving. I've spoken to a priest, but I still can't take it. I need to turn myself in with you, if you would come today. Please forgive me. I need you. I'm so sorry to have been a disappointment to you in every way. I'm even worse than words can describe, and I hate myself. I need your love, please. Still love me. I can't live unless you love me. I've ruined my life and yours, and I don't know what to do. I'm so ashamed and scared. I love you, Angela. Joe! I gotta say, Valerie Harper's acting was just so good in that moment. Great actors could do so much with just a little bit. And she was not a great presence in this movie, but what little they gave Valerie Harper, she did so much with it. This scene and then the later scene where she and Angela meet up was just, that was some of the best acting to me in the whole movie. But we later see, you know, Ms. Del Vecchio, she picks Angela up at school and they just have that moment where she is basically reassuring her daughter that she does love her. Mm-hmm. I believe I heard her. I mean, it's not crazy to hear this, um, but I believe that I heard her ask why, like, why'd you do this? You know? Oh, who, uh, Ms. Del Vecchio? Mm-hmm. Which is funny because in the letter she did say, you know, don't ask me why or how, I don't know why I did it or something to that effect. Yeah. So like the larks are gossiping there at school and Jill gets upset because basically they're pointing the finger at Angela. And, you know, Jill, of course, she is a true blue friend all the way to the end, still defending Angela. And this is when Jamie, I guess she gets a set of cojones finally, and she kind of stands up to them too. We flash forward to six months and we see the priest. He's giving a sermon where he talks about particular ownership about, he doesn't mention any names, but how they as a community have to look at their values and what they value rather, how they have to examine the goals that they have, because something like this doesn't just exist in a vacuum. This had to come from somewhere. These kids, they feel the community pressure to be the best, to be the brightest, to have the best, to have the most. And they should do essentially some self-reflection about what they place value on. Value should not be placed on things. Value should be placed on character. I agree. Uh, He's basically saying like, you know, she basically, she considered herself a failure and that the attitudes of the parents were being visited upon the children. So I think it's important as parents, we, as in the collective, we, we raise our children to be good people. We tell them to be kind to people, to treat people with respect, and we should have them value these attributes. You know, Jamie, she's in her professional. She's crying about how she didn't stand up to Stacey in the ski lodge. And you know, I guess these sort of things happen when, you know, a major event happens. We always look back on the moments where we could have possibly changed something. And I think that that's a very difficult situation to put yourself in. It's unfair to yourself. It's easy for us to often do that, especially as women. I feel like we often blame ourselves a lot. Speak for yourself. I'm never wrong. Okay. <laughs> um, the priest does tell her to have courage and to be her friend when so many have turned against her. 
And um, I think this is when we see, well, another moment when we will soon see that Jamie begins to, like you said, stand up and stand up for Angela when, again, everyone is blaming her for the death of Stacy. I mean, she is at fault, but you know what I mean? So Jamie's at home and she's watching a news report that is discussing the events of the, the recent days. Principal Sachs, he's not buying the idea that the community had a part in what has happened regarding Angela and Stacy. Didn't I tell you I didn't like that guy? Yeah. Like, such a dick. Ugh. So moving to the courthouse, Jamie's there. She sees Jill and she waves to Jill, but Jill keeps it moving. You know, she's like, don't try to be her friend now. It's too late, you know? And at that moment, the prosecutor walks by and he's um, Michael stopped. Michael Chan. Yeah. That's him. another uh, closer. He stopped by a reporter and the reporter asks him to confirm if he rejected an offer of a plea in the second degree, he confirms. But the reporter is like, well, what's the point when the punishment is the same for both? And his response is that he's trying to serve the community interests. When we all know that if it's the case where you're still going to get the same penalty, you're only doing this for the parents. The parents are probably asking you to put her on blast, let everyone know that she's the killer when it didn't have to be. Not just that, but don't forget that these are affluent people. Absolutely. So, Absolutely. You know, if the same sort of circumstances had happened to, you know, LaQuisha, do you think they would have even wasted their time? Absolutely. Shout out to all the LaQuishas listening to this. <laughs> but, you know, money talks. That's how it is. Prestige, it, it matters. I mean, unfortunately, for the other 99% of us, we're in the process of the trial, the defense, the prosecutors, they present their opening arguments. And we see outside the courtroom, it's really packed to the brim. Like, I guess this was like, obviously a hot ticket. This is 1985. Things like this weren't common occurrence. So this was like a big deal. Yeah. And this is when Meredith, she kind of basically is being snobby to Jill. And she says that this trial is for Stacy's friends. And Jamie, she, you know, she stands up and she's like, look, Jill has as much of a right to be here as anybody. And I guess this is the point where Jill stops being a jerk to Jamie. I noted that at this point, Meredith is the new Stacy. You cut off the head of one snake and, or whatever, you cut off the head and another one grows. So you get rid of somebody like Stacy, it doesn't matter. Somebody will be there to take her place. So that's essentially what this scene is illustrating to me. In the courtroom, they play Angela's confession tape. And this is at this point, her mom, she gets on her knees and she starts praying. I was like, yo, my mother would do some mess like that too. <laughs> I was, and she is just like very loud and very vocal. Like I was just like, sit down. So at this point, her lawyer is basically presenting his argument and he's saying Stacey is beautiful. She was popular. She was perfect. And Angela is none of those things. Oh my God. <laughs> I was like, yo, is he for her or against her? Throughout this movie, they, they are really showing the disparity between the two people, the two sides, the two worlds, what have you, like throughout. It's like, she's over here and you're over here. Like they really did a good job of telling us like Angela was trash. She was nothing. Or at least that's how they felt. I don't feel like that. You know, at this point, the closing arguments have been presented and the judge basically says that the prosecution failed to prove that there was- Intent. No, a contention of premeditation. And he's like, well, what was the point of this? Like, we, we've mm -hmm. discussed this. We know what the point of this was, but he's probably like, why are you wasting my time with this? 
Either way, she's going to go to jail, that she's going to get the same sentence for first degree, second degree. Why are we here? But like you said, it's about the parents wanting to, you know, humiliate her. I don't know if humiliate is the right word. I don't, I don't, I wouldn't say that, but they just want her to pay in a sense. They feel like they are owed that. Like, I don't know. I, I don't know if humiliate is the right word. Because basically, in, in my opinion, she deserved everything she got. I'm sorry. Like, especially if she's my kid, you kill my kid. I don't feel sorry for you going on trial and having to tell the world what you did. I don't. That's the least you can do, especially since you're not getting any more than nine mm-hmm. years. Yeah. Like, come on. You know, at this point, the trial is essentially over. And what we see is we see pretty much a lot of what we saw in the beginning of the movie. We see tennis, uh, someone playing tennis. We see jogger. We see the kids riding their bikes. And that tells me, or that basically illustrates to me, like, life goes on. Absolutely. Back to like, normal. Yep. Like, you can have show. this. Yes. You could have this major catastrophic event in your life that brings your world to a grinding halt. And outside you open your window and nobody's none the wiser. They're living their lives as if that doesn't matter. So that's essentially what we're seeing here. We hear a letter that Jamie has written to Angela. and She talks about the goings on. Like She quit the Larks. She is no longer going to Santa Mary. She's going back to St. Joe's. And she also talks about how we can't go back in life when we do things. We have to forge ahead and move forward. We learned that um, Angela, she basically did seven years in prison and she was paroled. She was out of prison, like I guess about two years before this film came out. I know the parents had eventually moved to Hawaii. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry, the Costases rather. They moved to Hawaii. I guess they had to escape the publicity, all of this, you know, the memories um, which I don't blame them. They also, I don't know if we mentioned that they had another son. His name was Peter. We see him in the movie as they're driving up, but they had another son. So they probably just wanted to go raise him, you know, away from the spotlight, away from the drama, away from all of that and go live a more quiet life. Yeah. So she gets to live her life um, mm-hmm. almost as if nothing happened. Mm-hmm. And Stacey, she's gone. I even mm-hmm. think they mentioned or something, I believe I came across something that said she had a boyfriend while in prison Mm. and that there was an incident where she attacked someone or maybe even attacked him. I didn't understand how that was possible. Do you remember reading anything about that? No, I don't. Did you have any takeaways from this film? Absolutely. We have to learn to be content with what we have. Mm -hmm. That does not mean that you can't aspire for more, but killing people is just not the answer. Yeah. I just, I pretty much want to um, piggyback off of that and echo what father no name had to say. Sorry. They didn't give him a name. So they um, did. no, they didn't. I promise you they did. I promise you they didn't. I promise okay you guys. She says she's always right. Right. <laughs> she says she's always right. Please, please write in and tell her that she's wrong. I promise you. I promise you, I watched this movie multiple times. I promise you, I went, I promise you, I went to the scene with his first introduction. I went to the scene where he, um, he had dinner and they just referred to him as father. I promise you, I went on IMDb and I looked it up and it's just the priest. I promise you, he did not have a name. To be continued. I know I'm right. We'll, we'll let you guys know what the answer is on the next podcast. I'm right. I'll tell you right now. The answer is Carol is right. Let me just finish. Uh, I just wanted to, um, echo everything that you said. And I know it's so difficult, especially when you're a teenager, like everything is so immediate. Everything is so important. Everything is so grand. Everything is bigger than what it is. And your life, the world revolves around you as a teenager, right? So you think every little thing 
matters way more than it actually does. But I do want to say to anybody listening to it, I don't care if you're a teenager, I don't care if you're in your 20s, I don't care if you're in your 40s or beyond. You have to try to find a way to be okay with who you are. And like Teresa said, take what God gave you and try to make the best of it. Because there's no sense in living a life where you are unhappy, where you are looking at someone else and where you're aspiring to be someone else. You don't you don't know what people are going through. Even um, Stacy, we don't know if she was happy. I'm sure she had her own insecurities about things that she wasn't happy about. Nobody is perfect. We all have our own little things. Some of us just hide it better than others, you know? And also with regards to what Father No Name was saying, let's teach our children. Let's teach each other. Let's be a community where we value goodness, kindness, and all the positive attributes in people. And let's place less of an emphasis on things, material objects. And I know that's easier said than done because we live in a society that seems to spotlight perfection. Yeah. Not just perfection, but things, you know, houses and cars and the bigger, the better. But also people are important too. People matter. The thing I did read also was she moved Bernadette. She changed her name. Mm-hmm. She served after she served the seven years. She changed her name and she moved to, I think, Oklahoma. She basically was under the radar for so many years. But, you know, the Internet being what the Internet is, people basically, they found her. She's basically been outed. I'm not going to say what her name, her new name is. She's been outed. And um, from what I been reading. She she worked as a nurse and as a medical writer. She was a contributor for a, I think, a prestigious scientific journal. So like you said earlier, she got to live her life. She was married. She got to do all the things that Kirsten never got to do. And that's really sad. I've said it earlier, somebody like Bernadette doesn't peak in high school. She would have had a great life if she just held on and just chilled the heck out. She would have been okay. Now, did you read that her sister mm-hmm. is actually well off? Like she's a millionaire? She's a CEO of like for Google, I think, or something like that. Now, like you said, like had she waited, she would have been okay. Yeah, I misspoke. She's a CEO. It doesn't it doesn't specify what company she works for, but she's just a CEO. And like you said, she's a millionaire. She's well off. I do think that um Bernadette, she would have been fine on her own. Mm-hmm. I do. She's not the type of writer she wanted to be, but I feel like she probably would have ended up being some type of Cause she ended up being a writer in some fashion, like a medical writer, but I feel like she would have been a novelist. But there were some things like we didn't even add, like Nancy, she had a, she had basically, she had transferred out of the school after everything had happened. But when the truth came out, she transferred back to school, but all no, none of the kids knew really how to be around her. Like, you know, obviously they felt like idiots Bunch that they idiot, were. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> Jumped to conclusions, but she was actually in um a special that I actually watched. She, as her older self. It was called 1980s, A Deadliest Decade, The Cheerleader Murder. That was season one, episode three. And we saw her talking about her experience. And I thought that was kind of interesting. Okay. The sources that we used for this episode, People Magazine. This was in the archives, May 13th, 1985, an article by Arthur LaBelle. ClickAmericana.com, which featured an archived article from From Ladies Ladies Home Journal. (laughs) (laughs) Written by Carol Pagash in... November of 1985. We also have the cinemaholic.com, medium.com, wikipedia.com, murderpedia.com, and 
and Blogspot called Bernadette Pratty Exposed.blogspot.com. Yeah, guys, we were all researched up for this article. Um, we are interested to hear what your thoughts are about this film, about the actual events. Okay, so guys, if you want to tell Alex how wrong she was, I would sincerely appreciate it. Please reach out to us. Our email is blackgirlstalkpodcast at gmail.com. Our Instagram is Black Girls Talk Podcast. Our Twitter is Black Girls Pod. I know I, we haven't been super active on the social medias. Definitely going to change that. So reach out to us. Definitely. That's all we have. Thank you so much for joining us. We will see you next week. Thank you so much for listening. And that's all. You can't hear that? On your end, yeah. That's what I mean. Uh-huh. Sounds like a washer or a dryer. Nice, somebody dragging a body or something. I don't know what that is. I never heard that before. Too many true crime movies. Too many true crime movies. Clickamericana.com, which featured an archived article from Ladies Herm. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> and that's going in the blooper section. And we out.